this is Jimmy Martin music. How do you play consistently like in that style? And I just really started working on trying to get every little note clear that what I thought sounded good. So I just immersed myself into listening to nothing but Jimmy Martin's records, paying attention to the details more than I had ever paid attention before. Greetings, everybody. It's Keith Billick here. Welcome to the show all about banjos and the people who love them. And it's a busy time here at Picky Fingers HQ. Not gonna lie, this is the last thing that I'm doing before shoving off to Raleigh, North Carolina for the annual IBMA music conference. I will have an exhibit hall booth with my good buddy Daniel Patrick. He hosts the Mandolins and Beer podcast. So if you happen to be attending the uh, the IBMA conference in Raleigh, please stop by exhibit booth 620. You can check out the brand new colors for the official Picky Fingers t-shirts. Uh, I'll also have some brand new hats and hoodies there along with the stickers. And frankly, even if you're not interested in the merch, I always do love uh, meeting you listeners. I, I know I'm talking to at least dozens of people right now, but as you can imagine, podcasting sometimes gets a little lonely here. So it's nice to know that real life listeners are out there. So, oh, and also I am moderating a podcasting panel while I'm down there. That will be Wednesday afternoon. Check your schedules. That's going to be very exciting. It's going to feature Amy and Shelby from the Bluegrass Situation and then Lizzie and Cindy, the co-hosts of the Basic Folk Podcast. So I'm very excited for that and can't wait to hear what they have to say. And then as soon as I return from IBMA, I will be packing again to go to uh, the Great Lakes Music Camp to teach people banjo. So if that is something that might interest you, head over to greatlakesmusic.org to find out all about that. And the introduction to the interview would not be complete without recognizing this episode's VIP supporter of the show. Today's very important picker is Stefan Renstrom. Stefan, thank you so much for going over to the Patreon site to show your support. And that site is patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Head over to that page, check out how to pledge a measly few dollars per month to help keep the banjo show on the air. And you do get rewards in exchange. So we are scratching each other's backs here. Uh, so once again, thank you to Stefan Renstrom. And once again, that website is patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Other than that, the best ways to support the show is just to tell all your banjo-loving friends about it. And don't forget to follow and subscribe on all the uh, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram type of places. Or get a hold of the show at PickyFingersBanjoPodcast at gmail.com. Today's featured guest is Tom Adams, and what can I say about Tom? He is simply one of the top banjoists of his generation. His playing is always a very exciting display of great drive, great tone, great taste, uh, and you know just all the things that we love about great bluegrass banjo playing. He is a multiple IBMA Banjo Player of the Year award winner 
and has performed and recorded with such folks as Jimmy Martin, the Johnson Mountain Boys, Blue Highway, Rhonda Vincent, Michael Cleveland, and many, many more. I do owe a special thanks for this episode to Chris and Sandra Warner for providing the venue for the interview, and uh, that fact might give a little foreshadowing to future guests. But for now, let's give a warm picky fingers welcome to Tom Adams. started playing the banjo when I was 10 years old. I played in our family band. My dad <laughs> and uh, brother and I, the three of us, started the group. My dad played the guitar and the mandolin, okay. and uh, he taught me and my brother Dale to play the guitar and the mandolin. And then it was my dad and not me who decided, we're going to get a banjo. He, right. he, he borrowed a banjo from the town barber, Bob Weikert. Mr. Weikert's banjo, brought it home. I think he had to go to the next town over to find a banjo instruction book. And every night at nine o'clock, when my brother and I were in bed, we'd hear my dad down in the living room, plink, plink, plink on the banjo, trying to get the hang of the banjo. Oh, so he had intended it for, for, to for be him. his instrument. He, yes, oh, he, okay. he was going to learn to play. I, I, you know, it, even when he got it, it's like I still had no interest in the in the banjo. Yeah, he never got the hang of it. Still had the banjo in the house for a while. My dad worked six days a week, so I'm at, I'm in school five days a week. But Saturday mornings, my dad's at work. There's the banjo in the case. I'm not supposed to take it out, probably. Okay. So I figure, well, I have to take it out. <laughs> so I just started flailing away on it, not really knowing any technique. I pulled out the banjo and the guitar. I knew the chords on the guitar and sat with the guitar on one side of me and the banjo on the other side on the couch and would go back and forth playing a chord on the guitar uh-huh. and then move the guitar away and pull the put, pick the banjo up and try to figure out that same chord on the banjo. Oh, interesting. So I taught myself chords on the banjo from the guitar. And at some point, my dad had asked somebody about, well, just, you know, what is this three-finger bluegrass banjo playing? Mm-hmm. And the person told him that the thumb plays the melody and the two fingers fill in the other sounds. Yep. So right from the start, that that was like part of my style over the years was I would use my thumb way more often than uh, a lot of other banjo players. A lot of notes, you have a, a choice between your thumb or your index, and I would almost exclusively you know, use the thumb in there from that early. And that goes back to that first piece of advice that your your dad, you and through your dad uh, received. Right. The thumbs playing the melody. So yeah, there I was. Interesting. So I stood in front of our home stereo with the Foggy Mountain banjo album, Mm -hmm. trying to just randomly just flail about on the strings with these fingers, trying to get something that sounded like one of the tunes. And when it came to Cripple Creek, this was before I knew Cripple Creek was like a go-to, you know, first couple of, or first tune that you would the learn you're on the banjo. To learn, yeah. And heard the chorus of Cripple Creek with the slides on the third string and just lucked into making that sound yeah. with, with the alternating thumb pattern well, roll. It's, it's perfect for what you just said about trying to use your thumb uh, so often, yeah. Right. So I couldn't do the the other part of Cripple Creek, <laughs> but the you know the the multiple slide yeah. part. It's like, oh, that sounds like what I'm hearing. So that's how you play the banjo. Yeah. 
That's thumb, cool. Thumb index, thumb middle. So then I proceeded to try to play every song with that same role. I didn't know there were other roles <laughs> or even uh, maybe even the term role at, at that time. Uh, so I worked out, you know, hearing Foggy Mountain Breakdown on another album that we had somehow could play Foggy Mountain Breakdown with the alternating with the alternate. thumb pattern. It's like, you know, and it, I was playing, trying to play the sound rather than play a particular roll pattern. Mm -hmm. So just based on, I think it sounds like this, so I'm gonna move my fingers as best I can to you know sound as close to that as I as I could. Just hearing you tell the story, you're you're sitting and figuring out Foggy Mountain banjo. That seems like quite a shift in your focus. Was, were you considering yourself a banjo player by that point? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I just, yeah, I, I play the banjo. And back in those days, I, I you wouldn't run into somebody who would say they were a the terms. I'm a beginner. I'm an intermediate. I'm an advanced. Maybe they were around them, but I never heard them. Mm -hmm. You'd run into another person to play the banjo, and the discussion would be, "Oh, how long you been playing?" That that was it. Just you know, I've been you know, I've been playing a year or two, or six months, or whatever, yeah. or I've been playing twenty years, and you could hear you could hear it in their playing, you know, from the one year or twenty year. And there, there wasn't the discussion of whatever level they were at. Yeah. It was how long you've been playing, with the assumption that well, if you've been playing longer, you're you're better. Pl playing a little better, right? Um, so so that was it. I just. The whole thing of having a, a career in bluegrass music playing the banjo, it's because my dad brought the banjo to the house. Yeah, amazing. And you said you had a, a family band. Was that the main vehicle by, by which you could, you know, use these skills? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a a band, and it was called the the Adams Brothers. At first, it was called the Adams Brothers and Dad. Okay. <laughs> we were on the next to the last uh, broadcast of the Ted Mac Amateur Hour on uh, CBS TV, uh, you know, almost right before they they didn't cancel the show because we were on, but we were we were very near. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> we were very near the the end, but uh, you know, there's Ted Mac. Okay, from Gettysburg, the Adams Brothers and Dad. And uh, is this on YouTube somewhere that uh, some sleuths might be able to to find I, it? I I don't believe so. the The old sh uh, Ted Mac shows are. Uh, uh, there's a there's a gatekeeper who uh, you know oh. you can uh, you can maybe buy a DVD of that episode, but as far as it kind of a bunch of that stuff being out, um, maybe some is, but not the the show not, not uh, uh, that we were on. But we, we did a medley. Ted Mack had us come to his uh, upper uh, private office, and he goes, "Oh, what are you planning on playing?" And it's like, "Well, we're you know we're going to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown." Uh -huh. By then, I think I might have modified some of the roles. I'm not sure. I don't don't have a real good memory of that. But he said, "You're from this historic uh, Gettysburg. Uh, do you have any like historic old tunes you could do?" I said, "Well, I, I had learned the Battle Hymn of the Republic." Mm. Uh, so why don't you do a medley, you know, go from the Battle Hymn of the Republic into Foggy Mountain Breakdown. So that was our performance uh, on the show. Oh, nice. So that was that was pretty exciting as a little kid to uh, drive all the way to New York City. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, TV cameras and the whole business. That was like, whoa, definitely out of my comfort zone here. As yeah, a, it's a big deal a if like kid. your picture gets in the paper for some reason every once in a while. But yeah, to be on <laughs> TV and in the tall buildings. So, well, well we had the, the family band for 11 years mm -hmm. from uh, from 68 to 79. And so from 69 to 79, I played, uh, played the banjo. And for the first couple of years of the band, I was the only lead instrument. 
Oh, wow. So that also really affected my playing style or had, you know, between that and my dad, if he, if my dad walked into the room and he goes, if I can't tell what you're playing, you know, you're, he, he didn't directly say you're not playing it right. But, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you say you're playing grandfather's clock and I come in, it should kind of sound like grandfather's clock. Yeah. So the idea of playing the melody a lot, but my own desire to kind of mix it up a little bit, you know, how can I, okay, here's the melody to whatever. How can I twist that around a little bit so it still sounds like that song, but there's something either slightly melodic, melodically or definitely rhythmically. Uh, I was fascinated with changing rhythms, but it still sounds like the song. So being the only lead instrument for a few years in the, in the family band and wanting to feature the melody that my dad could easily follow along on the guitar, that kind of shaped my playing. Yeah, I mean that you you already brought up probably the the biggest topic that comes up when people discuss your style, your your rhythmic interpretations and and variations and stuff. So, I'm happy to dive as deep into this as as we possibly can. What in what ways did you work on, I guess first of all, bringing that melody out? Do you have any advice or what worked for you in terms of accomplishing that? Trying to listen as closely as i could to whatever the source was of the of the melody whether it was a a recording or or just my dad singing and playing guitar chords to a song that we didn't have a recording of yeah. um and just just trying to be a really good listener first and then the playing would come second yeah. and trying to find those melody notes and whatever fill in notes you know, like you could analyze it after the fact. Well, what did what did you use there? Did you, you know, intend to play a forward roll or a backward roll? And it's like, well, I'm trying to play the melody. We could record it and then listen back and then see what the roles were because that would be my thought process while I'm playing is I'm not thinking, okay, I want to keep a certain stream of forward rolls going while I'm doing the melody. It's like, here's where I want to place those melody notes whatever needs to fill in yeah. is gonna is gonna happen it's reverse engineered to to be able to hit those guideposts uh, which are melody notes yeah yeah that, like. th that's how i worked it out cool uh what other players were influencing you at that point obviously you, you said you started with a lot of scruggs material but um you know you, you had that 10-year span i imagine you were uh eating up a lot of a lot of other influences as well what, what do you remember about that um, that we had a lot of Flat and Scruggs records and and a lot of Jimmy Martin records, mm -hmm. and of course at the time I had no idea I'd have a shot at you a know, foreshadowing playing. Yeah. playing uh, it's like that's Jimmy Martin, the guy on this Decca album cover, standing. <laughs> he's live next to me here. Uh, Country Gentleman, uh, Jim and Jesse, the a lot of Osborne Brothers really loved the Osborne Brothers music, and in this area, South Central Pennsylvania in the 60s 70s a lot of the volunteer firemen organizations would have fundraising carnivals hmm. all summer long may june july august and as the entertainment you know you got your ferris wheel and the, the merry-go-round or whatever and then it might be on this really small stage connie smith or uh -huh. or the osborne brothers wow and I didn't know at the time that if you were in 
Iowa or Wyoming or wherever that you couldn't just go out all summer <laughs> that didn't long. Happen everywhere. And, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, well, it's happening here, you know. So we were really fortunate to see um like the Osborne brothers live a, a lot between 68 and 72. Wow. Uh Sonny and Bobby and uh, Dale Sled, oh, uh, yeah. Ronnie Reno and just they were just killing it. I mean, the singing and the playing. Yeah. Um and there's, you know, so they're out as a four-piece live band. Mm-hmm. Um Bobby's chopping the mandolin. The entire backup is whatever's on Sonny's mind at at the time. Of course. Yeah. And and that was just <laughs> it was so cool to see that and just focus on the on the banjo. Okay, the banjo breaks and now hope the singing's not too loud because I'm trying to hear that banjo backup. <laughs> and uh Sonny might have a particular, you know, lick of the evening or a lick of the afternoon that he'd it'd be in this song and then it'd be might be in the background of this next song. Uh-huh. And uh so if you were trying to study the banjo playing, you were going to get a, a repeat version of uh, whatever cool lick he had going yeah. on that day. But um, but even maybe on a on a different day, then you'd get a different um, different take on the same song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you picked up a lot of that from someone like Sonny, or what? What do you think you learned by being able to see someone like that up close uh, in those formative years for you? I don't. I can't remember how long it was from the time I, you know, stood in front of the stereo and figured out one roll on mm-hmm. Cripple Creek until I saw a good professional live player. It wouldn't have been more than a year or two, but the the first good player I saw in person, and after I saw them play this particular break, saw them do it instead of just hearing them do it. I thought I thought I had it pretty close to the sound of their break, but then I saw them. It's like. You know, he's moving one or two fingers and I'm doing something that needs, you know, seven or eight fingers uh-huh. to get that sound. It's like, oh, that's how you do it. That's so cool. Seeing Del McCurry play live when Donnie Eldrith Sr., I don't even think there was a junior at the time, but okay. Donnie Eldrith was on the, on the banjo. Really nice guy. And, uh, you know, I got to talk to him after the show and just told him, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning to play the banjo. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, the way you play that lick there, it's like once I saw you do it so much... Uh, uh, it makes <laughs> it a lot, a lot more, more sense. sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was so helpful to see these good players, you know, playing in the area. Don Reno, whose style I just find amazing and admire, and my dad was a huge uh, Reno and Smiley fan. I wasn't drawn to Don's playing. Mm-hmm. There was just something that didn't it didn't wind my spring the way Earl Scruggs playing did. I was just yeah. so drawn to Earl's playing. But in the in the late sixties, early seventies. Don Reno and Bill Harrell, uh, with Jerry McCurry on the bass and Buck Ryan on the fiddle, they played in this area a lot. So, uh, like out of the first generation guys, yeah, I, I only saw as a kid, only saw Earl Scruggs play one time, but saw Don Reno play a lot. And wow. I'm, I'm watching, it's like, how are you doing? Like the double pull off on different strings. Well, that's cool. Do you think it had anything to do with with your? background in using that thumb lead whereas reno i think you know he did plenty of thumb lead stuff but he also had a fair bit of just that straightforward role playing as opposed to that square role do you think that was maybe the the difference that you just didn't hear something that you related to quite as much if, if you had to guess I, I i don't think it was that i i think i really think it it's the accuracy and clarity of every note in Scruggs playing that that drew me to that. And Don's was a little looser 
I wouldn't say not not as accurate, but just it was a a different sound, a different tone. You know, I listened to all the banjo music that I could. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but everything it's like okay, there's Earl, and then there was everybody else. Nobody had told me from from the outside saying. Earl is the guy, and everybody's you know kind of circling around that. But just my own perception was, Earl's playing it the way I want to hear it, and then I really like what Sonny's doing, and uh, Alan Shelton on some you know Jim and Jesse recordings, yeah. Country Gentleman, Bill Emerson uh, with the Country Gentleman, and then the Jimmy Martin recordings with mostly with uh, JD and uh, and Bill Emerson on those records yeah. and, and Chris Warner on those records. Right. And uh, talking about, you know, seeing really good players early on, you know, live. Chris was also one of the first players that I saw um, with the uh, local uh, band here, the Carroll County Ramblers. And seeing Chris play with them, that was fascinating. It's like, man, this guy can really play. I want to I want to <laughs> grow up and play play like Chris Warner. How would you describe what he was doing and um, what impressed you about it? It was so perfectly rhythmic and precise, powerful. Mm -hmm. There was no doubt where the the beat was and just the the syncopation in in his role, full of energy, uplifting. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's it. You just, you hear it and, and, you know. What the thought of well, what would I change about that? Doesn't it doesn't even come into your mind? It's like that's it. That's yeah. It's that's, just great. That's how it yeah. goes. Yeah, real happy and just kind of joyful sounding. Uh, I totally agree. Yeah, and j- just just so confident. Yeah, confident, precise. Yeah, yeah. I, I just loved it. Totally agree. So, what was the next uh, big break for you in your career? What was the you know you went from family band to of course eventually playing and and a whole lot of of the top notch professional groups? What was the first break you got? Well, my my dad passed away in 1979. Mm-hmm. At that point, it was a five piece band, and everybody decided not to keep the band going but i wanted to keep the band going so my brother and i started looking around for uh, some local folks to play with and lo and behold uh chris warner called up and said you know if, wow. you, if you guys are going to keep the band going uh it's like and i'm thinking oh i'd really like to keep playing the banjo but chris plays the banjo <laughs> but before i could say anything about that chris said you know i play the mandolin too oh and he knew a guitar player in the area. So for a couple of years, uh, we went on with the Adams Brothers, uh, Dale and I and, and Chris and a guitar player named uh, Jeff Toll. Oh, wow. Uh, and we even did a you know a vanity pressing album of uh, songs that we did and uh, sold that at our, at our shows. So that would be between like 1980 and 83. And... Uh, we changed personnel a couple times in there, uh, and during that time, uh, Warren Blair, great fiddle player mm-hmm. from the, the Baltimore area, 
Warren called up and I filled in with him on some gigs, uh, uh, playing bars in the Baltimore area. Okay. So that was first time I had done that, you know, four, four sets or this one place, five sets, nine to two. Oh, wow. Five sets, uh, at the Club Ranchero. And all I remember about the Club Ranchero was the bright red leather seating everywhere. Uh, but I played a lot of gigs, <laughs> a lot of gigs with Warren and his brothers. That was a really good learning experience for playing uh, so different songs that I'd never played and and just playing in, in different different settings, you know. Yeah, talk about that, I guess. You know, if that was, I can imagine playing for that long in a night really whipped you into shape pretty pretty well that's a lot of endurance that's required and then not only that but if you're playing songs that you don't know you really have to have a, a higher level of concentration to be hanging with that so yeah maybe talk about what what that did for you yeah that's um it was really good for the just the, the sheer amount of playing that that you would do yeah. uh in an evening or in in a several weeknights or weekend nights um and just uh, experiencing different timing. Hmm. Uh, there was one feeling to the timing in our family band and a diff different feeling than playing later with Chris, chopping the mandolin and just playing with Warren and filling in with uh, other bands here and there. Uh, just noticing the, the difference in the timing that's, uh, you know, things, hmm. things would gel uh, on some nights or some tunes better than than others. Yeah, and trying to thread that needle of here's in some cases like here's where I think the beat should be, but here's where the 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 beat seems to be. Yeah, you know, and it's like, well, what's the best thing to do for the for the song? You know, maybe I'm filling in with a a, a group and their timing's not what I'd like it to be. Uh -huh. It's not going to help the performance and help the song if i just you know go along and say here's where the beat is you know you're all either dragging behind or, or speeding up that's you know you, yeah you that's like, a tough balance to to find how much should you try to pull them along or just kind of give in to what it seems to feel like right right so you just you know, Maybe try to just edge it a little bit, you <laughs> Split know. Split the difference, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just you know, what's what's the best thing for the the music? Because mm -hmm. it's you know, it, you know, three minutes later, it's over. Yeah, you know, and it's and it's uh, you know, everybody wants to have fun, and it's uh, in a way, it's a business setting, but it's a social setting. So you know, no use getting all you know hot over yeah. over something. You know, uh, you guys sped up on that. So you know, so what? That's no, nobody's doing that maliciously. Uh, a lot of, of course, a, yeah. a lot of people that get bent out of shape in in local band settings, uh, local band politics. They 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 get too upset over, over things. It's like everybody's trying. Everybody's trying their best. Yeah, and uh, and you know, be encouraging. Yeah, you it's know? not personal if it, someone didn't play how you wanted them to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, when you're when you're learning to play. And if you can get welcomed welcomed into the community of other players who play better than you, when everybody's just you know really helpful and and remembers that there was a time when they didn't know how to play, yeah. And and if they can remember the the uh, group of people or, or a certain person who really encouraged them, and it's like, and it's like you know, 
I can hear that I'm not playing. I'd like to be able to play, you know, play better. I can hear that I'm not doing so well and any, you know, helpful advice you have and, and just, you know, being welcoming and, and helping folks like that. That's, uh, yeah. It's just being willing to pay it forward when you're in the, maybe the other position. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, It's just everybody helping each other is, 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 is a big part of this. When, when and how did the opportunity, uh, come up to play with Jimmy? In the early 80s, I was uh, giving banjo. I was the banjo teacher at Chris Warner's uh, music shop. And uh, Chris had a music store in Hanover, Mm -hmm. uh, PA, sold instruments, built instruments, repaired instruments. I was giving banjo lessons. One day, Jimmy Martin called up and, uh, Chris, I need you to fill in with me uh, at a festival in Bainbridge, New York, I think it was. I think that's it. I'll have to check with Chris. I think it's Bainbridge, New York. And, uh, you know, I, I think the fellow playing banjo with him was, uh, might have still been in high school. I forget oh, what wow. it was. Uh, anyhow, Chris said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll be there, whatever, Saturday, Sunday, whatever weekend day it was. And uh, Chris hangs up and he goes, hey, you ought to ride along up. You know, if you want to keep playing this banjo and you want to, you know, make a, a, a career out of this, why don't you, you know, ride along, you know, try out you know maybe i'm filling in maybe this other fella is leaving the band so maybe jimmy's looking for somebody yeah so for the i forget how much ahead of time uh, jimmy had called but i just tried to pick chris's brain about well you know what do you play on i know what's on the the recording uh but i remembered hearing chris say uh in the past that there were some things that yes it's recorded this way but jimmy's really looking for the break to go like this and then he showed me some little uh little subtle uh, changes in how things were supposed to go so worked on the jimmy martin hits rode along yeah uh tried out on on the bus well you know that's not too bad or whatever i'm not sure what Uh he said but it was like you know we'll we'll call you (laughs) but a little bit dismissive uh not not, re- not really you know oh. not not really dismissive but uh just kind of led me to, like you're on the right track uh jimmy's saying was you need to get with the records hmm. so go and, home and what did you take get- that to mean <laughs> well I, a lot more i needed to know you know just yeah. uh get more of the details down so i remember having a uh cassette recorder and like just working on a three to two pull-off on the third string, just that, mm-hmm. just over and over and over. Could I do challenge, challenging myself to do what I thought were 10 good snappy three to two pull-offs in a row? Could I do 10? If I got up to nine and screwed up, I'd start over. Uh-huh. And I just really started working on all the, the basics, uh, just trying to get every little note exactly clear that what i thought sounded sounded good on i don't know two dozen different banjo breaks to to jimmy martin songs yeah just you know really just paying attention to the details more than i had ever paid attention before it's like okay and, and and i was aware at the time okay i've been in the family band for years and playing in uh, in bars where you just you know you'll you'll play a country gentleman song then you'll play a Jim and Jesse song then you'll play uh, a Hank Williams song uh-huh. or George Jones song on the banjo uh, and it's like no now there's this is Jimmy Martin music and that's yeah. all it is start to finish wall to wall how do you play consistently like in that style 
so I just immersed myself into listening to nothing but, you know, Jimmy Martin's records and saw where he was playing uh, in Eleanor, West Virginia, down in the hills of West Virginia, drove down there, uh, went backstage. Hey, I've been working on your stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, after the show, I'll come out to your car in the parking lot and hear, hear how it sounds. So he comes over with his guitar. There's nobody there, just the two of us. But wherever Jimmy Martin, <laughs> when Jimmy Martin opens the guitar case, and, <laughs> and there he is, it's like, well, before you know it, I'm not just, you know, demonstrating breaks to him. Now it's this thing, and there's a, you know, there's impromptu a performance kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so Jimmy liked the way things sounded. Why don't you come up on the stage and, you know, play a couple songs? Will you do that? Come oh, wow. So I I did on their second set. Got up and played. I guess I knew the break to uh, uh, "I'd Like to Be 16 Again." Oh, the worst mistake I could ever make was to take that wedding vow. Which is played in uh, key of F, no capo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he immediately puts me on the spot. Here's a boy I found out in the parking lot. Knows more of my songs than my own banjo player. Oh, no. And I'm thinking, oh, this, uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, this is how I want to, <laughs> yeah, I want to be known <laughs> as, as this guy. Yeah. So Shannon Mays, the banjo player, he's still, he's, he hasn't left the stage. He's standing right there while Jimmy, you know, Jimmy has a, uh, he can really turn a phrase, you know? Yeah. So, okay. A little awkward. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you go, all right, get right up there in the microphone. Well, I didn't know that I, I guess I played harder and louder than, than Shannon had played. So I kicked the thing off and it's like, you know, it's way too loud. It's unpleasantly loud. So I'm back off the microphone. So it's like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really racking up the points here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we did like to be 16 again. And then we did song after that. I can't remember what the second song was, but a couple weeks later, he called me to fill in. Uh, uh, there was another show where Shannon couldn't make it. And then maybe there was another fill-in job. And uh, this is through the summer of uh, 83. And I, I think by the end of August, he asked me to join the band. Wow, that's amazing. I, I maybe do, just don't have the perspective of how things were done, but did you, when you went back to that second uh, gig to show him that you had been working on his stuff, did did you have some sort of expectation that he was looking for someone to to fill in or is that the way i couldn't imagine me going up to a, a band leader just to demonstrate that i had been working on their stuff in kind of angling for for a gig like that or was that just well known that jimmy was always kind of looking for people who could fill in or or um, like how, how did that work i i didn't think any more beyond just that I, I had this challenge of, you know, can I show this guy, Jimmy Martin, who knows how thing every, a, a bluegrass musical genius, mm-hmm. knowing exactly how he wants every part of his music to be played and just show him I had really worked on this stuff. And I think I have it where it could, you know, yeah. fit into to what he's doing. Not really thinking, well, I hope, you know, I hope his banjo player, you know, has has to leave or uh, i just wanted to put it out there that okay if you ever do need somebody yeah. um 
I would really, <laughs> really enjoy. And maybe uh, that you had chance. taken his advice to heart, I guess, when he had told you to go. What did he say? You you need to get it more like the record or get with the record. Get with the record. <laughs> so I yeah. got with the record. Yeah, maybe show him that you had uh, listened to him and acted on it. Or yeah, yeah, and but I had no. It wasn't wait. Wasn't waiting for the call. You know, I'm still. Yeah. Um, you know, playing other gigs and yeah. uh, and 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 happy to do so. Uh, Take me back to when you were. Um, studying the records you said you would you know do the pull-offs and, and really dissect things i would love to hear more about what things you heard when you really put it under the microscope and maybe in a more general sense what do you maybe hear other players doing that they don't have quite as detailed as what someone like jimmy would have wanted well a couple things come to mind when you walk up on the first two strings with the intro that ends with that hammer two to three on the second string are you completing the hammer on two to three on the second string before you play the open first string mm -hmm. or do you bring that finger around on the hammered note at the same time that you're playing the first string right and there are recordings that have examples of both and it's like oh well that does sound different i you know again just always trying to be this listener you know okay years and years of listening and listening and okay that that's a different sound uh landing on the string like that and then just picking up on some rolls that i you know thought they went one way because i was assuming that the roll was going to go in one direction but in listening you know slowing down the recording and, and just hmm. not so much slowing it down more often just the repeated listening up to tempo uh -huh. and going oh no that's they're doubling back on that role and it's like well i wouldn't play it that way it's like well that's not me playing <laughs> that it's like you know what you, what you expect you you have you have to go in like you don't know it at all because the assumptions get in the way yeah uh, wow. and I've, i found that to be the case with a lot of players well figuring well it must go this way because that would be the easiest way but they don't finish. It's the easiest way for me, but uh, just to, to go totally to a different uh, banjo player and different style of music. You know, Ron Block, you listen to a Ron, a killer Ron Block break, and it's got this really cool lick, and you, you know, you're trying to learn it, and it's, oh man, that's so hard, you know? It's like, well, Ron Block is not going to concoct a lick that Ron Block can't nail. <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, it, it's the perfect lick for the song. You know, he nails it. He, he, he plays it. He can play it. Mm -hmm. It's not this, oh, here comes that lick. I wish I hadn't ever concocted for this song. No, that's, you know, that's what's working for him. And and you need to remember that when you're listening to recordings by anybody where you think you hear hear it, you know, accurately. Because, well, if you did it so, this, if you played it this other way, that wouldn't roll smoothly off your fingers. But it did off of that player's. Yeah. Uh, so and maybe that's what makes their style their style is that they they have those different tendencies that that everyone else doesn't have absolutely that's mm -hmm. that's a huge part of it mm -hmm. yeah 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 what what sails along coming out of their fingers going forward then backward as opposed to two forwards or two backwards right whatever they're doing that's totally natural that's that's what what's working for yeah. them so something like the example that you gave where those the that hammer on could be played before the open string versus simultaneous with the open string, it wasn't as if one was right and one was wrong. It was that 
each song might call for one or the other. And Jimmy was going to know the difference if you were doing it the the correct way. Is that a fair summation of that one? Yeah. And he might, I don't recall him, you know, explaining something like that in, in that detail. If, you mm-hmm. know, if I kicked off, you don't know my mind and did the hammer the opposite of whatever he was expecting, he wasn't going to, he didn't spell it out like that. No, you're mm-hmm. hammering too early. He wouldn't, wouldn't use that. Uh, he would drill you on, on kickoffs and and the famous example I have that I think is from when I first was, you know, trying out for it for him there at that, at, in the parking lot at Eleanor, West Virginia, I kicked something off. Uh, we walk up on the fourth string, but I'm bum, bum, bum. So I do that and he's Nope. So I do it again. Exactly the same. At least I think so. Nope. That ain't it. And then the third or fourth time, thinking I've done it exactly the same as I was doing. So no, that ain't it. No, that ain't it. I do it again. That's it right there. And I'm thinking, ah, (laughs) (laughs) I'm freaking out. I do not hear the difference. I wonder what I did uh, differently. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, either he heard the difference or he didn't. And he's just, you know, like messing with you. And I, I, you know, I can't suppose to think, I don't know what he was thinking, but the idea of, that level of detail on on the timing on a certain lick, how that can make the difference between, oh, that's pretty good, and that's it. Yeah. Um, it's like... So did you ever figure out what it was that, that he was hearing? No, 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 not, not really. <laughs> not, not really. But that causing me to examine everything you know, every last note I was playing as, you know, is it in the pocket or isn't it? And there's only one in the pocket. And if it's the slightest bit, you know, there's a million ways to do it that isn't the right sound. And then there's that elusive one way that, you know, when you hit it and it's just, "Ah, that's it. I've talked to Alan Mundy about almost that exact example and jimmy kept telling him no the timing's not right time's not right time's not and alan thought he must mean the tempo or how close the notes are to each other he's he's like what could he mean the timing's not right and what he actually meant was the duration of each notes and it took alan forever to figure out sort of this jimmy speak way of of describing it so it sounds really similar to that that alan had almost the same experience as you of trying it over and over and not not knowing how it was right or wrong and yeah, yeah just yeah. kind of guessing yeah that's that's crazy um and and jimmy you you had to figure out what he meant mm-hmm. I, I never remembered jimmy saying something and then going in other words tom i mean there were <laughs> you know there was no he's he's going to keep saying it the same way uh over and over and you need to decode it and uh, chris chris warner helped me a lot with kickoffs with with the duration of notes hmm. that instead of but bomb bomb letting the notes sustain it's, right. it's you want it you're, you're going to use your left hand a lot of the sound that i developed was you know trying to have a good solid right hand but what my left hand was doing had a huge effect on the duration of notes or curving my index finger around to mute the strings that I wasn't playing to totally isolate one string. 
Mm, get that real clear tone. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, cool. so to get that bum bump bump just have a I, I i call it having a point on on each one of those kickoff notes yeah yeah i think that's almost exactly what what alan described that's that's yeah. really cool to hear your version of basically the same story yeah, yeah. well J- jimmy Fascinating. martin jimmy martin was consistent you know it's yeah. like whatever uh if it was on the record in 1960 he wanted to get that sound in 1983 Hey folks, Keith here, just taking a quick break from the episode, but I'll be right back with the rest of it. I did just want to mention that if you are looking to have your dream banjo built, or if you just need some of the top quality components to add to a project or an existing banjo, I couldn't recommend anyone more than Sullivan Banjos. Sullivan has been one of the top names in the banjo industry for decades. And Eric Sullivan down in Alabama brings all that experience and adds his personal customized touch to make sure that you are getting the banjo of your dreams. Whether you are looking for a tried and true traditional design, or if you want to get a bit more uh, imaginative, chances are if you can dream it, Eric can build it. I know that's true because I've been playing my own Sullivan custom banjo since 2004. So give Eric Sullivan at Sullivan Banjos a call at 502-365-5022. Visit them on the web at sullivanbanjo.com or email at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com. Now, once you have that Sullivan Banjo in your hands, the best way to learn it that I recommend is with Peghead Nation's online streaming video courses. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out some of these banjo classes that they offer. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. All of these courses are going to include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of songs to play along with. Now, the best part is that just for being a Picky Fingers listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. Once again, pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS to get your first month free. And folks, another sponsor of the show and one of my favorite places on earth is Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. Now, I worked there for about 10 years and it's still where I go for all my banjo, guitar, and any other string instrument needs. So that should really tell you something. Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and has grown to become the world's most trusted source for new used and vintage fretted instruments. So whether you are looking for your first beginner instrument or that hard to find vintage collectible, Elderly is going to have that and they are also going to back it up with the best customer service in the business. So head over to elderly.com to see their full inventory online. They ship worldwide by the way. Or give them a call at 517-372-7880. I would love to discuss a bit more about how 
your personal style was progressing and you you kind of brought it up that you found creative ways to mess with accents or or rhythmic expectations and i would you know i i do solicit questions for my guests on on facebook and and definitely the most popular question for you has to do with your displacement of accents and notes that really kind of throw people for a loop and it's really unique to your playing and i'm just wondering i guess first of all where do you think that sensibility came from for you to think to to do things like that oh gosh i mean at the most basic level just looking for that variation so if something went da 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 well then da ba dum you know just changing taking taking the note that the notes that did go you know short long and well what if it what if it went long short hmm. um experimenting you know what does it sound like and i'm not going to know what it sounds like until i play it and make that sound it's not right um changing up the timing is not an exercise in you know writing out a tab it's not on the tab paper of uh well what if i change the timing here's like no play play it what does it sound like always what does it sound like yeah what are some do, do you have any techniques that you'd be able to describe for someone looking to add that element in, into their own playing is there is there a way that you actually work on something like that gosh Pl- play a, <laughs> play a lot mm-hmm. you know play play a lot come in earlier or later on some lick you already play hang out on a chord longer what if you were still holding part of the c chord after the song returned to g what does that sound like that's more of a a melodic thing than a rhythmic thing i think it it needs to come from your own imagination Hmm. um again referring to to tablature if you have a a tab of this something that has wacky unexpected uh timing that's that's not the same as you imagining it yourself because what speaks to you what's going to sound believable i'm always thinking in terms of players and singers when you hear somebody you can hear in their playing and or singing you can hear if it's coming right out of them that they they are the author of this mm-hmm. sound and they believe what sound they're giving you whether it's with their instrument or their their voice that they're really communicating f- from them from their own thoughts um you know from you know listening to whatever you know podcast broadcast radio is someone speaking from what they think or are they reading something yeah and that sound of reading reciting reciting yeah, right, yeah. from with their instrument or their voice just because you know they 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 lost they got the short straw okay you're the singer in the band <laughs> i don't want to be the singer well that's clear that's it's coming through yeah <laughs> you know? yeah yeah nobody needs to guess uh what you're doing there so you want you want to have this sound that's believable and imagining how things could be changed timing wise i don't really have any exercises for anybody any recommendations other than you know what would you do differently and you have to if you can't imagine it you can't begin to put that sound out through your uh, through your fingers 
um, things can come just from mistakes, you know, what, whatever, sure. uh, or what you might view as a mistake. Uh, you, you meant to do this other thing, but this other thing happened. Now, if you're just the listener and you, and you hear that, whatever the player thinks was a mistake and you just, Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So you need to hear your own playing as rather than focusing on, Oh, I meant to do this other thing. Yeah. But I never thought about, you know, fill in the blank, you know, second fret of the second string over top of the C chord where the roots let the first fret of the second string. That was a cool sound. Huh. I didn't yeah. mean to do that. And it was just there and gone. So you try it. It's like, okay, if I hang out too long, that really doesn't work. But if I make it that just short C sharp back to a C, I have not played that before. There, there might be a spot for that. The, the more you play, the more mistakes you make, hmm. the more chances you have to hear, you know, observing your own playing yeah. and, and hearing, oh, I like that. You, and you might be able to remember it, you know, you could be recording what you're noodling around right. on, um, or maybe it's there and gone, but just lis- listening for the opportunities to, to to where maybe you hear, oh, that's uh, displacement. That's that's a very good description where you displace, oh, the slide, oh, now the slide has been shifted a quarter note over this way. Yeah. And oh, it has that sound. Oh, now you're putting the emphasis on this moving part of the uh, melodic sound, now that's in an unexpected part, and that now that now that feels different against the the rhythm that hasn't changed. Right. It's it's almost like the sensation. I think we've all maybe been in uh, lower level bands where somehow the bass player gets flipped around where the bass notes are, and it's like a very disorienting experience. And some of your playing almost ventures into that territory but of course you land it and and come back around Maybe I'm exposing my own simple-mindedness, but I think that might be the challenge for me is displacing those things. I, I almost feel like I'm lost as, as soon as I do that. And did that ever happen to you or you just have this bigger rhythmic sensibility that, that I must not have? Oh, I no, I got, I got lost. I know exactly this. The <laughs> I know exactly that one time that I got lost. Now, <laughs> on... Uh, my version of uh, Cumberland Gap on the Right Hand Man album, which it's th- that album is uh, you know a bunch of songs that have been just you know standards that have been done to death, but I wanted to d- put a new little different twist to them. Mm-hmm. So on Cumberland Gap, instead of starting right on the beat with that hammer on the fourth string, there are spots where where you're you're starting the hammer ahead of the downbeat.
was playing the IBMA showcase. Uh, I remember David Greer was playing the guitar because because he he has a classic look on his face when the banjo player messes up. <laughs> Just check check David's <laughs> face because he, he's like, well, oh well, <laughs> you, now you tried it, but. I did some kind of timing thing. I, I got so far out of whack, I could not. <laughs> yeah, I was the bass player with the with the flip notes, and and uh, I could not find an escape. I'm not sure how I got out of it, but I was, and it probably only went on for you know six or seven seconds. But it's like, yeah. help me, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but that's this, a helpless feeling. This yeah. is the banjo break, and and everybody. That's interesting thing that I learned early on was. Um, yeah, if, if the soloist gets lost, sometimes in a local group setting, the soloist gets lost and everybody in the band tries to adjust to try to get back with them. Mm -hmm. well, well, nobody hears where it's headed this in the same way, so it all falls apart. Yeah, yeah. And then you learn, uh, it's like, nope. The band's gonna keep their uh, their rhythm going, and yeah, you're you're out there. Bye, Tom. <laughs> you know, but, but we're we're not gonna change because we don't know where you're going. Right. Um, I guess another type of displacement that I hear with your playing is um, not only the the time displacement that you're that you're talking about with Cumberland Gap, but maybe flipping the um, the expected accents around within a role. Is that something that you remember working on quite a bit as well? I remember um, in John Hartford's playing, his use of the fifth string as a filler note and i can't name any certain break or tune or song but there was something about where he put some of those fifth string filler notes that i found fascinating hmm. and i think was directly connected to to some of the timing things that that i would do there's uh on uh, <laughs> Trying to think of an example. Blue Highways, Born with a Hammer in My Hand. There's a uh, roll I do on the uh, C7 chord. Well, it's, in, it's not, in, not in G, but I think of it as a C7. The 4-7. Yeah, yeah, the four, <laughs> we call it the 4-7 in the background. And I'm bouncing back and forth. And it, it's actually, it's, it's the alternating thumb pattern. Mm -hmm. But... In, in, instead of where the fifth string, where you'd expect the fifth string to be in the alternating thumb pattern, now the fifth string is is on the downbeat, is on the first downbeat, and this roll is going thumb, index, thumb, middle. It's the fifth string that's on the downbeat. Uh, out of the four notes, thumb, index, thumb, middle, it's going five, two, five, one. But I'm playing it so that you hear two, one. So I'm I'm playing the fifth string, but uh, but that's and that's fifth string is falling on the downbeat, but it's that's not what's being accented. Okay. So you, so so the rhythm's going along, and you have this, you know. Yeah. Um, Just gives that that little hitch or what, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but again, that's uh, just it's a sound. I'm imagining the sound, mm -hmm. and then making the sound that i'm oh that would be a cool sound 
Well, how do I do that? Well, just, you know, again, back to the just flailing your fingers about there, there are, you know, when you're working something out, there are no wrong notes. I try to impart to my banjo students, you know, if you listen to something, if, if you're trying to model what you're playing after a, a recording, mm-hmm. um, you listen to that recording and you listen a lot, you give it your best shot, you're listening, listening, and then no tablature, you're going to play what you think you heard. If you gave it your, you know, a really strong effort and then you're playing it, it might not be what's on the recording, but if that's what you think it is and you've come to that through really intense listening, you are right. I mean, you're temporarily right. Yeah. If you think that's how it goes. Yeah. And that's, and it's, and, and you're playing from, your interpretation of that sound there's nothing memorized you you know you you've used your ears to get to this point you know keep keep, do, keep doing it that way yeah that's 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 right and then the better as you become an even better listener you'll you'll build on that and it'll be this organic natural process that when you finally let you know let, let's say you're trying to learn the crow's kickoff to to old home place okay and you've never seen the tab you just have the recording and the more you listen the closer you're going to get to that sound and mm-hmm. and everything you're playing is going to be you're you're not going to play at a level that you're not able to understand right and somebody else pulls out the tab the, those are the notes. Uh-huh. That's an accurate transcription if they have the correct tab. Mm-hmm. You know, that, yep, yeah, that is what Crow played, but you're coming at it. Maybe you can make the finger movements that match what's in that tab, but you don't have the the background, the, uh, the understanding. You don't know what's beneath that that's not... Hmm not in the finished product, but it's what makes the finished product sound believable and and you're in control of it. And you're not just reciting, you're coming from, you know, you've, you've built it from the ground up, always always playing at whatever level you're, you're currently, you're currently at. And that kind of playing, somebody could play really basically, really simply, but everything they do it, it sounds so much more musical than someone who's coming at it with these are the correct notes. Yeah, but gosh darn it, it's not. It, it, yeah, just it's it's, it's not it's not. Uh, I don't want to tap my toes. It, yeah, it's not got the music in it. I think I know what you mean. Just adding that extra step of you having to perceive the music, but as you learn it, you've already injected a little bit of your own sensibility in, into what you're. You're playing, and it gives it that yeah. authenticity. It seems like yeah, and I'm, I'm and I'm not saying don't ever use tab. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you've listened and listened and listened, and you, it's like, but there's still that one part. You know, if you can find an accurate accurate transcription, and yeah. and there it is, you've already got ninety percent of it. And it's like, oh, wow, the slide is from three to four, not two to three, mm. and they they sound wildly different, but there's the thing where you're injecting the, well, of course it goes like this. This, or this is how I would play it, or mm-hmm. it makes sense that it would go like this. It's like, no, you know? So <laughs> yeah. uh, you're trying to learn the kickoff to Blue Highways uh, in the gravel yard. 
and you know you slide two to three. Uh, I don't know what's he doing. Well, he's sliding three to four. That's the sound. Yeah, yeah. We're, you know, we're talking about your personal style. Let's talk about everyone's favorite banjo topic: your drive, I- insane amounts of drive. And I know that you're really respected for for that aspect too. Talk about how you were able to achieve it and how you worked to to get that type of sound. She came down the seaboard line from D.C. to Caroline through Atlanta to Birmingham then headed south first word that comes to mind is just listening mm-hmm. trying trying to lock in with everything else that's going on and in playing along with really good players mm-hmm. they're they're laying down this groove that the the power of being locked in locked right in with that to me it wasn't it it was not just the banjo, I mean, you practice, you're at home practicing the banjo solo, maybe not playing along with something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's one part of this larger sound, you know, three-finger bluegrass banjo is not a solo pursuit. You really are learning your part of this blue, five, four, five, six-piece bluegrass orchestra. And what you're learning to do is to be you know it's it's a team mm-hmm. and when the whistle blows and everybody starts running you want to be right in step with everybody <laughs> else the, the the power of everybody being together yeah i was just just the pursuit of trying to lock in is what would feel to me as as having the the drive i'm not leading it i'm not following I might use the term following along. Well, no, you're not. If you're following along, you're behind. Going to be behind, <laughs> right. So you're just, you're all right there creating this living, breathing thing that lasts for a couple of minutes that is this this tune, this song. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing their part. And it's just, it's so powerful as this, as this uh, group effort. And everybody might, be capable of playing any number of hot licks, mm-hmm. but everybody's serving the song. Yeah, they, they, that's absolutely. So, so you view it as I don't know. I've heard people different uh, describe it in different ways. You are guiding yourself to your bandmates rather than was there ever intentional like leaning forward kind of thing with the tempo to to say I'm the banjo player. I'm supposed to be the 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 driver of the energy on this kind of thing and i need to push up against that that wall a little bit no not not like that but if i ever felt if, if the band had had this super energy that was leaning towards picking up the pace another beat per minute or something like mm-hmm. that if i if i sensed that things are leaning toward you know that at the end of a 3 minute tune that yes it is going to end up a little a little quicker than it started. I, I want to be at that new place. I, I don't want to lead anybody there, but I don't want to feel like I'm 
you know, trying to climb back up on top of the, yeah. the beat. I want to smoothly get wherever the group sound is going. Is there certain aspects of the group sound that you key off of more than others? Oh, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. In the Johnson Mountain Boys, I always keyed off, a, I was, was standing next to, which, but with the sound system, you can focus on any sound you want, but I stood next to David McLaughlin, and that mandolin chop, that's in the Johnson Mountain Boys and bands after that, I loved keying off of the hmm. mandolin chop, the, that backbeat. Yeah. I would practice with a metronome, with the metronome only clicking on the backbeat. Oh wow! Okay, and I and I highly recommend that if 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 you know folks that are learning to play, if they've never tried that, don't have the you know you know downbeat backbeat dot 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 dot. Just have it only on the backbeat, and and you can work out a way how you can you know get into it like that. But hearing that, totally different feel, totally yeah. different feel of having that you know one two three four one four one and 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 the energy that you get from that instead of the you know it's the difference between an, an audience when an audience claps along on <laughs> yeah, the downbeat right. and, and yeah it's and a good way it always when they're clapping on the downbeat it's like, okay we're just we're heading down into the mud here we're just going to drive this thing as deep down and suck all the life out of it but mm -hmm. if the audience is clapping on the backbeat man you're just you know it's like a rocket taking off wow that's interesting i'm definitely going to be trying that plenty that that's actually another uh question that came in from from the facebook fans um just hearing you know you took over for richard underwood and the the johnson mountain boys and we're curious how you felt about that what you thought of his playing and did you intentionally try to have a style that was distinct from his versus um maybe incorporate a lot of what what his sound had been Great question. I don't believe I even had any Johnson Mountain Boys albums before, <laughs> uh, uh, before I joined the band, or I should say, before they called, "Hey, you want to try out for the band?" All of a sudden, I'm going out. You know, where are the Johnson? Direct me to your Johnson Mountain Boys yeah. section of the record store here. Uh, Time to do some homework. Yeah. Um, so I had maybe maybe seen them play live once, maybe twice with. Richard and just my overall feeling was man these guys are on fire they uh -huh. are they are fired up to be here you know this you know don't don't look away you know you're gonna you're gonna miss something these guys are exciting you find the was a band sound everybody's working together mm -hmm. when i tried out for the band 
I, again, with the Chris Warner uh, uh, reference here, I went to Chris, hey, do you have an archtop banjo I can borrow? I thought I should emulate as close as I could. Well, let me back up. Playing with Jimmy, there was such a, uh, you know, a number of years had gone by since J.D. Crow and Bill Emerson had been in the band before I got to play play with Jimmy. So it was like, you know, you're looking back in history there, and he said you should study those recordings. That was one thing. But then coming into a band, you know, Richard's just now leaving the band. He's been on many records that they've done. And it's like, well, I guess I need to, you know, try to sound like him. That's That's their sound. Yeah. So got to the tryout, opened up the case i think it was eddie stubbs said i didn't know you played an arch topper no i borrowed it now play play your banjo <laughs> do do what you do yeah so there were there was um at least half a dozen licks that richard played that i just love the way they sound so i incorporated incorporated those into breaks but they were just like you know play how you play mm-hmm. the biggest thing and i've mentioned this in other interviews going from playing the, the syncopation that Jimmy wanted in the role. And that was again, uh, like a timing thing, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Alan or Chris will talk about that where Jimmy said, Hey, it's not the timing. And it was the syncopation. So it was the syncopation in the role with Jimmy. And then the first, I guess, Eddie, Eddie Stubbs kicked off a song and I'm rolling along and it's like, Whoa, this is really different. Hmm. What am I doing wrong? This is like this is the Johnson Mountain Boys. This, and it's like music minus one. You remember those old recordings? Sure. Banjos in the, only in one channel, and the rest of the band's over there on the other side. And I'm thinking, what what am I not getting? Because everything's in tune, everything's in time. What's not fitting? And it was just the the Jimmy Martin syncopation was not fitting the Johnson Mountain Boys groove, which Ooh. had a stronger more pronounced backbeat. Jimmy's rhythm was more even da 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 as opposed to the Johnson Mountain Boys da 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 little heavier on the backbeat like like the Stanley Brothers. Yeah. And and the timing was different from what I had listened to as I was trying to woodshed with their recordings. The time the timing with uh Larry Robbins on the bass on those recordings with Larry and uh Richard on the banjo that was one specific timing. Marshall Wilburn was in the band now, and the the live JMB right there was not like the recordings. Both excellent, mm-hmm. but different. But different. different. I yeah. mean, I don't know that the casual casual listener would hear that big a difference. But as a player standing in the middle of it, it's like, oh, we need to we need to play together live as much as possible. Yeah. When I joined the band. We would have weekly practice sessions because, you know, getting with getting with the records was, was, <laughs> it was wasn't going to work. wasn't wasn't going to work yeah. in, in this case. So we got together regularly, and I I think it went fairly quickly that I adapted my role to to the JMB's rhythm groove to their groove. And how would you describe the adaption that was that was required? Uh, j- just the the difference in the. In the guitar strum, because where the bass is landing and where the mandolin chop is, that th- those are pretty much fixed points. Yeah. But the guitar 
the the swing factor that you know if you listen to the Johnson Mountain Boys recording uh for Walls of Time and and that has you know one and two and three and four and one and two and then you listen to uh, Ricky Skaggs recording of Walls of Time where he plays straight straight eights you know do 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 one and two and three and four and so that that's, that's kind of more the Jimmy thing right there yeah so yeah. it's the 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 swing factor was different so I'm trying and as you're playing these banjo rolls yeah some of the notes are with the bass and some are, are with the uh mandolin chop but it's the in between that to really lock in with the sound i want to get with with the guitar with dudley's guitar rhythm okay so it was navigating that and it's it's subtle subtle and critical yeah to have this pulse again we're okay now now we're all on the same page that now we're yeah this is powerful we're not at we're not at odds we're all, you know, full speed ahead. Yeah. So it seems like compared to Jimmy, there would have been a little more space in between, for example, the the bass and the mandolin chop, you know, the guitar maybe wasn't doing as much of the, the chugga chugga. Is that is that a, a fair way to put it? Or was there more to it than that? I, I, I wouldn't describe it like that. I would just say that uh, the role with Jimmy was more of the one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, uh -huh. Big space, small space. So the J and B, a little more even. Okay. But but not not Bale of Fleck roll even. Okay, I'm with you. <laughs> I am. That is so, I was just blown away every time I hear Bale's roll. It's like, that note is the same space as that other note. Yeah. That is so cool. I love that sound. Mm -hmm. No, I think I, I get what you mean. Just the, the, the level of swing was... Yeah. I, I think you already said this and maybe I didn't yeah. completely internalize what you were, what you're getting at. You said, yeah, that's the swing, so the swing thing. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like it. And I, and I would just, uh, a quick aside here for, yeah. for like fiddle and banjo duets, every fiddler has a different, uh, has their bowing slightly different and a, maybe a little different swing factor, just ever so slightly different, even just going down, da, 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 you mm -hmm. know, just, just doing that. And, so every fiddle player that I ever did a fiddle banjo duet with, it's like, I'm not just on automatic pilot. I am trying to get inside their groove and, and be locked in with them. So doing a fiddle banjo duet with Eddie Stubbs, different from Michael Cleveland, say. Yeah, well, let, I mean, I know it's skipping way ahead in your career, but I definitely have a note that I wanted to talk to you about uh Live at the Ragged Edge, mm -hmm. which I think is, from my perspective, that's like one of the more daring type of banjo performances where you're so exposed, you're responsible for half of the sound coming out of there. You have leads and backup to do, um, and you have to keep up with someone like Michael Cleveland. <laughs> so talk about that experience and um, in general, blown away by that recording. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what that was like for you. Oh, well, gl glad you like it. I'm glad we recorded it. It was just totally just sheer luck. Um, Mike and I were playing with Dale Ann Bradley at the time, and we had talked about maybe getting together and, you know, trying to write some tunes. Uh, and we looked at Dale Ann's schedule. I'm living in Pennsylvania. Mike's in Kentucky. Um, looking at Dale Ann's schedule. It's like, we're going to play this weekend, then we're going to play the next weekend. So how about in the week in between when I go home, 
you come home with me uh-huh. and we'll have a week of all we'll do we'll just get up in the morning and see if we can write some tunes yeah uh and then like there's a local coffee shop here why don't you know let's let's just go play for fun just just the two of us yeah okay it just worked out that we did record it uh that i didn't accidentally erase the recording uh the recording survived and it was yeah just this wild we had gone over the songs we were going to play we knew what tunes we were going to do but we hadn't worked out all the details so it really was talk about listening Mike doesn't see that you're nodding to him to give him a break. Mike hears that you're giving him the break and just to- totally amazing. Um, yeah. Um, the, the way that worked out. And he just j- is so amazing and pushes you to, you know, you know, it's sink or swim. He's, he's got it. He's, he's got it. Yeah. W- wall to wall. Uh, are you going to, are you going to retreat or are you going to just hop in and, and go along for the ride? Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was uh, f- fiddle and banjo to to the extreme. Uh, it was so much fun uh, to do that. And we just we sat there on a little stage, uh-huh. smaller th- than the area that we're covering, sitting here in this room, yeah. just a tiny little place, and uh, and and just looking at it like, uh, okay, I'm taking a break. Mike is the band. Mike's taking a break. I am the band. Yeah. So. Um, well, and even in that way, you know, typically when we think of the classic fiddle and banjo tunes, it's a lot of fiddle playing the melody, banjo doing some sort of rolling or vamping type of backup. But no, you you guys really did the whole swapping leads back and forth and playing back up to each other. There's a bit more to it than, like I said, your your standard fiddle and banjo type of stuff. So well, really we wanted to mix to it up to. because it was a live show. So we did, we did some, you know, some of the tunes were, it's all fiddle and uh, all mm-hmm. fiddle lead and, and uh, all banjo backup. And then other instrumentals where we, where we swapped um, breaks and then just to really mix things up and, and uh, make people wish that I would stop singing, I would start singing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we did some tunes uh, where I was singing um Again, the place was so small. Uh, Some of those tunes, I have the banjo tune to open F. Well, while I'm playing my G-tuned banjo, you know, the guy's sitting in the front row holding the other banjo in his lap. There's no place to even put it it where we're we're sitting. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, handing the uh, banjos back and forth. Oh, how funny. It's like, uh, I can sing in F, I can't sing in G, and I have all these, you know, know know my way around and like the sound of the open open strings so uh that's where uh, all that those sounds came on uh yeah, little, say, little, little maggie, maggie and, yeah yeah i was yeah and just listening again listening hearing what mike's playing and you'll hear lots of on lots of those tracks where one or the other of us starts some rhythmic thing and the other one joins in or, or, or uh, call and response or lots or, or, of interplay yeah yeah it's one of my favorite parts about it yeah
some of the stuff, you know, I had had the brakes worked out, and then other things are just totally seat of the pants, just spur of the moment. I think I want to do this. I mm-hmm. hear I'm imagining this sound. Uh, Mike did this thing. Okay, uh, where's that on the banjo? Oh, okay, I'm gonna, gonna gonna try that. And it was just, yeah, it was just you know, talk about a live recording. It was just live right then. Those ideas are you know out of our heads and onto our instruments. Yes, yeah, it was, it was hurry. just a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, so much fun. Are you familiar with the banjo player Lloyd Douglas? Yeah, yeah, Lloyd, great guy. Yeah, yeah and and fantastic player, of course, yeah. too. Uh, I I spoke with him about playing with Michael, and and he he said he had some exasperated sort of comment of like, man, playing with Michael, I just feel like I am redlining it the whole time, and and it's sort of exhausting in a way. Was that is, does that match your experience? Just the the presence and energy it takes to to keep up with someone like that. Yeah, I I know what you, I know the you know exhausting or I, I understand that. Uh, I wouldn't describe it like that. It's mm-hmm. just here's Mike's part, his sound. If you can't be inspired by that, if you can't mm-hmm. uh, just see it as this super opportunity, I'm I'm not I'm not saying Lloyd doesn't you know this is not referring to what Lloyd said. I, I know I know what he mean. Yeah, you can't you can't back back off if you, right. you know, you're not gonna you know not off and uh, <laughs> you'll you'll just you'll be buried. You know, it's like yeah. no no yeah yeah to- totally alert at all times and just yeah the inspiration coming from from that wall to wall sound. I think he just meant he was pushed to his limits. You and 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 you want to be. You, of you, course, you, yeah. You you want to be up to what he's he's doing. Yeah. Jerry Douglas is like that. Wow. You know this uplifting wall of sound, mm-hmm. and it just it makes you you want to do that. You want to do yeah. that on, on your instrument. Yeah. Just try various hot things that you might not have tried before, but tasteful. Always always tasteful yeah yeah more facebook questions um tom moore wants to express thanks for including uh, a tablature of his tune in a in a 2012 banjo newsletter some time ago and he's he of course writes really beautiful pieces of of music so he, he said to, to thank you so thanks from from tom moore well thank you tom um let's talk about your instruments that you've used and I'm, I'm sure you had to hear plenty about how you didn't play a pre-war flathead banjo and and all this you were known for playing your gold star so i guess a tell people what what your instrument was for for most of your recordings and then b how did you come to choose that as your as your main instrument okay um uh- well, I started on the borrowed uh, Bob Wecker yeah, the barbershop, b- barbershop banjo, banjo um, which I found where his son lived a few years. Maybe it's been 10 or 12 years now. Uh, got some uh, photos of me with the banjo I learned to play on. I think it's... it's. Uh, well, they still a, had it. There's an article or a posting on Banjo Hangout of me with the banjo I learned to play on. Then I got an upgrade to a $60 Harmony model. Not not the Roy Smeck, not the extra, you know, the Roy Smeck signature model, but a, a Harmony banjo with the, uh, uh, like the Bakelite uh, resonator with the big single screw in the back. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. So it's like, wow, this is really good. This is so much easier to play. 
Then I went to a banjo contest and everybody had something called a master tone. Mm -hmm. And I'm playing my harmony and I'm thinking, uh, this sounds really different. I think I, I want to work really hard. A lacking here. Yeah, I want to work really hard here and try to get a, a good banjo. So for, uh, I don't know, 10 years, maybe I played a 1969, I think is when it was made, Gibson Bowtie. And then I was on this kick where I want to be like Bill Emerson. So Bill Emerson was on the cover of one of the country gentleman albums with a Fender. So I bought a Fender, oh, wow. you know, and I think I bought a long sleeved uh, uh, purple shirt like uh, like Bill was wearing at some <laughs> to be like, like I want to be like Bill Emerson again. <laughs> and then uh, Chris had a, Chris Warner again back with Chris had a music store where he was uh, selling these brand new super you know what are these banjos Stellings a Stelling so. I played a Stelling for a couple of years, and then, which uh, also has a Bill Emerson overlap with that yeah, as well. Yeah, right, uh, right, exactly. And then I got in nineteen October of eighty one. I bought my uh, Gold Star GF one hundred that I used on every recording after that, and it just sounded great mm -hmm. sitting there in in the in the store. Picked it up, and it's like. I really like the sound of this. Yeah. And looked at the price tag and had this thought that, like, is this a real banjo, that real banjo players on real stages, on real PA systems? Because it was not an expensive banjo. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm thinking, well, I'm, this maybe, maybe it doesn't sound as good as I think it sounds or something like that. Yeah, you second guess yourself. Yeah, man. it's like, no, this is just, <laughs> this is a really great sounding banjo at an amazing price. And so I thought, well, what a perfect combination for a musician who's you know, <laughs> looking for that. Especially a banjo That, player, that yeah. next $10 paycheck, you yeah. know? <laughs> so, yeah, I I liked it from the from the time I got it. Yeah, and and those voices never caused you too much trouble of, you know, Everyone gets crazy about the having their old pre-wars and stuff, and so I don't know. The, the, it's it's tough to imagine that that idea never crept into your head about like maybe I should be playing this thing that is perceived as you know among the best banjos rather than than your trusty gold star. I well, I knew that I knew that a, a pre-war banjo was that was that was out of my ability to. Also, you know, have a car and maybe them. Uh, have, have a place to live and things like that. <laughs> so, and and the more I played it, the more I stayed with that one instrument, and it was you know just so solid. Mm -hmm. I liked the sound of it. Well, I, I liked the sound that I got out of it because yeah. it is, as you know, it's it's the player. I mean, yes, of course, yeah. there there's a minimum requirement of a banjo sounding good, but it's it's the player. I was at uh, Bill Evans' uh, Sonny Osborne camp one year, yeah. and Sonny passes his, I forget, it might have been the banjo he used on Rocky Top, passed it around, 10 different players played it. Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> they sounded 10 different ways? A yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So staying with the same instrument, learning the, the quirks, mm -hmm. maybe there was a certain fret that I knew that I had to bend that note a little sharp for it to sound it was in tune the rest of the way on some open strings or other frets, but I, I knew that to bring that note right in, you know, right in tune. Yeah. So little call them imperfections or, you know, just, just quirks, but you just, you know, that that's just, it, it's a part of, 
when you go to make the sound, uh, you do whatever compensating you do without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Your hands go onto this cord and without even thinking about it, your index fingers pushing that string up. Yeah, you've done the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And then it was pretty soon after we were just we were just talking about the live at the ragged edge. It was pretty soon after that that the the focal dystonia began to like really affect you. Is that is my memory correct about that? Yeah, yes. It had okay. already it had already started. Mm-hmm. And there's a note or two on that recording. I right after it came out, I was super aware of like I could tell you, you know, so many seconds into track whatever my middle finger hits the first string early. Yeah. And so that was the start. Another reason, so glad that we recorded that show because that was like the, that was a good thing to go out on. That was the last, you know. um, And that you were able to preserve that when you still had an opportunity to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the the focal dystonia, which I had never heard of, Focal dystonia, and I at first just thought, okay, I'm uh, I'm in my forties now. I'm really getting up there, you know, and I can't just drive eight hours, jump out of the car, and hit 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 it the way I used to. Yeah. So maybe I need to w- warm up more. Then I became clear that there was no amount of warming up that was going to fix this business of my middle finger hitting the first string early. Yeah, maybe real quick, give like a one or two sentence description for anybody who maybe they themselves haven't haven't heard of this. What is this uh, condition that we're talking about? Um, it's a focal dystonia, sometimes called called uh, task specific dystonia. Uh, in this case, it's a neurological disorder where the signal is not being sent correctly in the brain to the nerves that are connected to the muscles that want to need to move at a certain time when you're moving your fingers playing the banjo. Yeah. So um, all of the hardware is there, the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, the nerves, it's, yeah. it's in the brain. Yeah. And thus far, there's no cure for it. There are some treatments that have varying degrees of success and i was in some studies that uh involved the these treatments uh nothing worked uh well yeah it it didn't work it did not repair anything but it just it it came on really slowly like over the course of a year yeah And, and again i'm thinking the only thing i know about is um john starling seldom seen uh long time before had some operation on his hand it's like that that was the only uh connection i had to uh, there's something wrong with my hand i don't know what it is yeah maybe i so i found out who the surgeon was that operated on john starling drove down to fredericksburg virginia the guy, the guy says well you know bring your banjo show me what's what's going on here i played for i don't know a couple of seconds he goes he writes this neurologist uh, name down. He says, drive down the road here. My friend will tell you that you have this thing called focal dystonia. He said, it's in your head. <laughs> we joked about that. It's all in your head, <laughs> Mr. Adams. Yeah. Uh, so focal dystonia, never heard of that. Yeah. So went down there and he said, that's, that's what it is. And he said, sometimes you can even, you can fool your brain. 
said, what are we talking about? I said, well, on your, on your drive home, because I'm driving now from Richmond to, to uh, back to Pennsylvania, I said, stop at a drugstore, get an arthritis glove that uh, has the uh, tight knit, the fingers are cut out or whatever. It'll put a different pressure on your hand. Your brain won't think it's the same hand. So I went home, put on this arthritis glove, put my picks on, and before I touched the banjo, I knew my hand was connected again. Sat down, played as hard and fast as I ever did. Like, I might even put on the Schoolhouse album and played along with uh, Long Journey Home wow, or something. Yeah. And I was like, holy cow, this is great. Yeah. This is really great. Okay, now I need to go to do something else. Okay, come back, put the glove on again. The brain goes, it's the same hand. And had the same symptoms of not hmm. being able to control the movements of my right hand middle finger. Okay. So I'm thinking, oh, this is, <laughs> uh, it was devastating. I can imagine. Yeah. It just my whole, who am I on the surface of this planet? Tom Adams, banjo player. I don't know who I am. If I, mm -hmm. it, it might sound, I don't know, stupid, silly, whatever. It's like, if if I'm not Tom Adams banjo player now, uh, what what do I do? And looking down at my hand, never having heard of what this thing is that causes this, you know, always thinking, you know, one of these days a, a power tool will, you know, get one of my fingers if I'm not careful. But there's my finger. I can't, no matter how hard I try to will it to move correctly, just that just blew me away. Yeah. Um, is your understanding that there was something that you had been doing all these years while playing that um, brought that on? Or is this congenital somehow? Um, or is there something you could have done differently to have prevented the onset? Do you have any understanding about that? I've not had any uh, doctor, neurologist, anybody in the medical field tell me that there was something I did that caused this. Yeah. And they don't know what causes it uh, in people. And there are a whole range of dystonias that are either specific to one one muscle or group of muscles or almost all the muscles in the body that hmm. misfire and put people in tremendous pain. Yeah. But fortunately, it sounds like yours is the former that affects primarily your... Fortunately is a funny thing to say, but <laughs> exactly. com compared to causing you a great deal of physical pain, I, I guess maybe it's the... the Preferred, preferred right, one. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. I wouldn't wish any of it on anybody right, right. ever. Um, so it was just that finger, just that isolated finger. Had no trouble holding a flat pick. Mm -hmm. Still wanted to be out playing music. And so went through um, a couple of bands on my way to playing guitar and uh, fronting the live with Michael Cleveland shows. Yeah. Um, and so my guitar playing went back to, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it here or not, uh, the, the Carroll County Ramblers, the long running local band mm -hmm. that I had filled in on banjo for Chris, you know, back in the seventies. And today the band is still going. That, oh, wow. that band is still going with the, the children of the, the founders Incredible. of the band. But anyhow, their, uh, mother played the guitar and she was having some health problems. So they had me come along on their shows and play guitar uh, as an auxiliary rhythm guitar player. And at one of those shows, we opened for 
Bill Emerson and Sweet Dixie, his band. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Bill's like, oh, you know, if uh, <laughs> if I ever need a guitar player, and next thing I know, Bill needs a guitar player. Yeah, that's great. So um, I got to work with with Bill uh, and record uh, an album with him, singing lead of all things and playing playing guitar. And he jumped into the water. And he swam to the other side And he laughed so loud that the brain would shook Then he turned to the huntsman and he cried And the men looked up in wonder And the hounds ran back to hide For the fox had changed to the devil himself Where he stood at the other side And just, I didn't mention this earlier with Chris, being in a band with Chris, but there I am in the band, it's like, it's Bill Emerson. Right. And he's standing, you know, he's right next to me, you know, we're on the same stage, but not only that, he's right next to me and I'm just, you know, it's like, that's Bill Emerson. There's there's another cool Bill Emerson lick. Oh, I was supposed to come in singing on that verse <laughs> and I'm still, you know, trying to yeah. catalog what Bill just played on the banjo. Yeah. And I, I had moments like that with Chris too, you know, and you're just like, wow, that's a cool Chris Warner lick. I should have been singing. Um, so <laughs> not not the time to be a fan, I guess. I, I know yeah. I, I, I couldn't do it. So then Bill Emerson, uh, I think we either opened from uh, Michael Cleveland or Mike was just in the area and came out to a Bill Emerson show. And then I don't know how many months or years after that, he's like, you know, you want to want to try out for the <laughs> for the band. Yeah. So. Marshall Wilburn was the bass player. It, it, we, we run in these same packs over yeah. the decades. And uh, I'm in Pennsylvania. Marshall's in uh, Winchester, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mike Cleveland and the rest of the band's over there in Kentucky. So for years, Marshall and I would drive over to Kentucky together and drive back. And uh, it gave me a whole new level of respect for, for rhythm guitar players who nail that G run Every time, yeah, and it's like you know, how hard is ba ling, ba ling? Well, do that a couple hundred times a night and intersperse songs that are you know, just you know, the uh, killer speed, you know, yeah. just just flying like that. And it's like, wow, this guitar, this rhythm guitar gig, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. <laughs> new, new level of respect here, it's tough. Uh, and and that was really fun to have the opportunity to have such a great band and I sang, I'm no singer, but I, I sang and I was the MC and I really enjoyed being the MC. And I was like the, you know, the ringleader of this amazing circus. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for your amazement, you know, Jesse Brock on the mandolin or Jesse <laughs> Baker on the banjo, or of course, Mike Cleveland on the fiddle. Yeah. And I enjoyed my role of, of keeping the live shows just, clicking right along trying to read the audience you know make changes uh on the fly of i think they like this or they like that or 
let's just go right into the next song. Wow. We, they don't need, okay. uh, this song came from a songwriter and, you know, yeah, cut that out. That's not what they're here for at this show. So kind of learning that craft. Yeah. And uh, leading the uh, bluegrass audience at a festival, I think in Michigan, singing the uh, uh, Barney children's TV show theme. Oh, no. You know, you're not going to expect that, but, you know, uh, I don't know if Mike broke a string or, or what. Gave me the time to, I love you, you know, having the whole crowd singing the Barney theme. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was wacky. And yeah. Fun. It got you out of your, <laughs> out of your comfort zone for sure. It sounds like. Yeah. Uh, so after all this, what would you consider if somebody is new to your playing, uh, and you had to recommend one particular, uh, recording to them, what do you think is the recording that best represents, uh, the banjo playing of Tom Adams? One recording I would I would say it's the my Adams County banjo recording that is a mix of original tunes and some traditional tunes and tunes written by other banjo players uh, that really covers the straight ahead stuff and the changing up the timing on some things and how I would conceive of you know how I would write a tune yeah. Playing melody notes that are outside the outside the chord, but go with the chord. I'm, I'm re really happy how that turned out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great record. And then I guess finally leave us with, I know you have a website with a lot of instructional material that, that you've put together over the years. So tell everyone how they can find that and be able to enjoy your work that way. Oh, sure. Well, uh, if you type in Tom Adams Banjo, that'll get you there. But the, the name of the website, I was born and raised and still living in uh, Adams County, Pennsylvania. So I, I named that album Adams County Banjo. Had the, My column in Banjo Newsletter was called Adams sure, County Banjo. Sure. And that's adamscountybanjo.com. And uh, there's tab there for a lot of tunes uh, and tab for my recordings and uh, yeah, stop by, check it out. The uh, the best selling uh, Earl Scruggs backup licks uh, uh, video instruction yeah. uh, thing is uh, is on there. The, all the uh, uh, backup licks on the uh, on their Mercury sessions recording. Mm -hmm. So it's I try to be really meticulous and break it down. You know, explaining what the backup lick is, playing it on the, you know demonstrating it on the video, having a tab for it, uh, having the lyrics to the song showing that. This you know this particular lick starts right on this word, where you can hear it on the original Flat Scruggs recording. Yeah. So if you're trying to decode any of that stuff, uh, th those makes it a lot easier. Those yeah. licks are available. That's and great. Uh, just one thing, one more thing, as far as like you know learning to play, if you take that instructional video or any other instructional stuff that's out there by any player. Again, consider the setting. This is a banjo that's part of a group. So the licks you hear that Earl Scruggs played on these recordings, that's in Lester Flat, Earl Scruggs, and the Foggy Mountain Boys. Maybe that's the perfect lick on We'll Meet Again, Sweetheart. Maybe yeah. that's not the perfect lick for whatever's at your local jam group yeah. while someone's maybe singing quietly or there's not uh, a super strong rhythm maybe pop 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 maybe that's not the <laughs> spot for that lick so always take stuff in context always be listening to to what's going on uh, around you you'll stand out by blending in it's like yeah this is the dude we want to play with 
Yeah. Uh, you know, so and so he plays some hot licks, but sometimes they're not tasteful. But this other guy's listening to the groove that we have. We like that. <laughs> yeah. Make 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 everyone else sound better. I think is a good is a good just cardinal rule. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tom. I loved hearing all your stories and your advice, and uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for tuning in, folks. There were a bunch of song clips in this episode, and they were Ginny Wits by Tom Adams, The Dill Pickle Rag by Reno and Smiley, Lock, Stock, and Barrel by Chris Warner, I'd Like to Be 16 Again by Jimmy Martin and the Sunny Mountain Boys, Cripple Creek by Tom Adams and Michael Cleveland, Cumberland Gap by Tom Adams, Born with a Hammer in My Hand by Blue Highway, Trains Are the Only Way to Fly by Audie Blaylock, Maybe You Will Change Your Mind by the Johnson Mountain Boys, Sally Gooden by Tom Adams and Michael Cleveland, The Black Fox by Bill Emerson and Sweet Dixie, and finally Santa Cruz by Tom Adams. Thank you once again to Stefan Renstrom, today's VIP Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself. Email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And if you are in Raleigh this week, come say hi. Booth 620 at the IBMA Exhibit Hall. All right, that's going to do it all for me. I will see you all next time. Jimmy Martin.